Welcome. I'm your host, Carl Nelms, and this is the Bloke Psychology Podcast, where we discuss everything from men's health, mental health, relationships, psychology, masculinity, and pretty much everything that relates to being a man in today's society. Today's episode features Mr. Matthew Jackman. Now, Matt is many things. He's a clinician, he's a social worker, he's an academic, a lecturer, a researcher, a PhD student candidate, he's an advocate, and he's done some truly remarkable things in his career in the mental health space already at the ripe old age of 30. He's also an individual who has experienced mental health challenges throughout his life and lives with a psychiatric diagnosis and we explore the ins and outs of that and what that actually means and Matt raises some truly incredible points about the way in which we conceptualize and think about mental health and gets us to challenge really why we do the things we do and think the way in which we do when it comes to mental health and stigma and treatment and diagnosis And I think you'll walk away from this episode thinking a bit differently about mental health and support and labels. Let us know what you think. Highly encourage you to check this out. I think you'll enjoy it. Enjoy, guys. And welcome back to the Bloke Psychology Podcast, guys. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm speaking to a really inspirational fellow. Also, we just figured out he's also my sister's lecturer at university, Mr. Matthew Jackman. Matt, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thank you for thank you for having me. And that, uh, yeah, little fun fact. Yes, small world indeed. Now, Matt, we've been trying to set this podcast uh, recording up for a long time now because I think you were one of the first people we reached out to when we decided to launch the podcast because I noticed on LinkedIn you are doing some really cool, innovative, unique stuff in the mental health space. Mm. Give us the quick summary. Who is Matt and what are, what are all the things you're doing in this space? Oh, the quick summary. Um, so where do I begin? Um, so I'm, I'm a person with living experience. Um, I choose living, not lived, because I'm still alive, um, of bipolar affective disorder as defined by psychiatry. And I'm a family carer of two younger siblings that have very uh, significant mental health issues or distress. Um, grown up losing my mother to suicide. So I've really grown up around a lot of mental health and a lot of social issues that have been impacted due to distress. Um, and again, I choose to stress very uh, intentionally as well. Um, uh, through that, I've, I'm a trained social worker and have worked uh, clinically in forensic mental health and in advocacy type roles within our forensic uh, hospital system and in our prisons in Victoria. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess I've done a lot of global mental health advocacy work um, with the Global Mental Health Peer Network and the Global Shapers with the World Economic Forum. Um, and am an ambassador with Generation Mental Health. And take a breath. I'm now a, a lived experience academic um, at Vic Uni, so I teach uh, lived experience perspective, service user perspective, um, and all the alternatives to psychiatry and the psych science model. So anything that uh, is reflective of a social, structural, cultural, spiritual perspective in mental health and and the, and how distress is conceptualised and treated. 
Mm-hmm. Busy man, Matt. Very busy man. <laughs> Not all at the same time. Not all at the same time. Otherwise, my psychiatrist would probably think I was manic again. <laughs> yeah. Nicely pointed out. So for anybody listening who potentially isn't too familiar, Matt, uh, you mentioned uh, as defined, of course, by psychiatry and the DSM and all of that, uh, bipolar affective disorder. Tell, tell us about what that is and what is it like to live with that? Yeah, good, good question. I think uh, to me, bipolar affective disorder is really the, the result. It's an adaptation to a lot of trauma that I've been through. Um, that, adaptation, that adaptation or that expression of distress is mood fluctuations for me. So I try to talk about these illness-based labels um, and lenses through more humane ways. So I really see bipolar as, as an expression of my distress, of my vulnerability, um, which is to sort of ongoing trauma that's occurred throughout my life. So uh, my mood fluctuates um, and is often um, triggered either up or down, you know, either elevated or lower um, in response to triggers around my trauma. Um, yes, yeah, such as, uh, you know, um, rejection, um, such as violence, um, feeling unsafe, um, so a lot, yeah, a lot of it's linked around my childhood trauma um, of growing up in quite an abusive household um, and obviously losing my, my mother to suicide. So that's sort of how it looks for me and um, ebbs and flows seasonally as well. I'm very seasonally effective too. So I'm, I'm actually doing pretty okay this winter in spite of the circumstances. Wow. Yeah. I was going to ask that because as we talk today, we are what, three, three days in or four days into our stage four restrictions in Victoria. So you're doing pretty well regardless. That, that's awesome to hear. I, I love, Matt, I wanted to go back and touch on, I love how you put that, uh, that you see bipolar or your diagnosis as a response to the traumatic experiences you went through. And I, mm. I imagine that is at the core of what you're very passionate about, which is the MAD movement. Would I be correct in saying that? Yeah, absolutely. They, I guess they go hand in hand, really. Yeah. Because that's very different to how probably a lot of, a lot of people, if they haven't done much research or education in mental health, would understand, especially those acute diagnoses, which are, if you pull out the DSM, they're disorders, whereas mm. the mm. terminology slight change but such a difference in meaning isn't it disorder versus response to that trauma that somebody experienced yeah absolutely and some of that's my social work training as well in thinking about recovery and a trauma-informed and trauma-driven focus um as the the clinical service system is really founded around a biomedical perspective um which seeks to individualize and pathologize our expressions of distress and adaptations of distress as an illness you know which seeks to blame the person rather than actually contextualize a lot of our distress in systems and societies of um, inequity, um, injustice, uh, you know, you don't need to take a pill for racism. Um, so, you know, a lot of my work is around advocating around bringing back the social and structural determinants to understanding our distress rather than pathologizing it as a, some sort of brain disorder. Mm -hmm. So, so just quickly, can you give us a, I suppose, a definition of what the MAD movement is and historically how it came about? 
Yeah, for sure. So I'll, I'll walk us, I guess, backwards from the present, because um, so I'm a MAD Studies instructor, um, which means I, I teach the discipline of MAD Studies, and, and MAD Studies um, is a interdisciplinary discipline that looks at, you know, critical disability studies, sociology, psychology, uh, history, cultural and queer studies, all sorts of intersectional disciplines that is constructed around mad knowledge. So mad knowledge means that people that have been deemed mad by the system or by psych sciences have actually co-created our own theory, research and knowledge. Um, and that's centered in mad study. So the word mad is reclaimed as, as is queer, you know, with queer studies. So, um, but that's really emerged, that name has emerged in the last decade or so out of Canada, where a lot of um, radical critical mental health thought has been put into the system due to their socio-political context. Um, and really that, that, that discipline's emerged from the MAD movement. Now the MAD movement is a, emerged out of the civil rights um, space, you know, where we had the women's liberation movement, the queer movement, the student rights movement in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and we saw a lot of um, people that were deemed mad in institutions rise and create their own services and liberation movements, particularly in North America. Um, through that process, obviously, there's been a lot of co-option and the MAD movement sort of looks like recovery in mental health now that's been co-opted by a biomedical model to look like clinical recovery or symptom management rather than actually on the broader uh, context of our lives. Um, so that's really how it's emerged um, through, through a rights lens from people that have been deemed mad themselves wanting to redress the system through actually our own knowledge and our own understandings of our own distress rather than other people telling us what that looks like. And does mad stand for anything? No, it just is literally a reclamation of the word okay. mad. Um, okay. yeah, so it's to take back power because obviously the, the discipline of knowledge is the idea is that it's an indiscipline, which means it's its own discipline of knowledge, but it also the purpose of it is to create activism and advocacy outside of the ivory tower of university. Mm -hmm. And I imagine like most, uh, I suppose, movements or advocacy movements, there's, there's different extremes where do you lie in terms of uh, the mad movement and, and what would you like and broad question, I know it's a broad question, but what would you like, like to see changed in the Australian health system and mental health system specifically? Oh goodness. I hope you've got a series for me. Um, <laughs> Well, that's a great, that first question's really good because I, I think that's something that's always um, growing for me. Um, I, I, I like Buddhist principle, you know, I think balance is really important. Um, and a lot of my understandings around the social context of distress isn't to discredit that distress is really distressing and that there's potentially a biomedical focus for that. Um, and we know there's a lot of really good neurobiological research around um, trauma and fight, flight, freeze response, which does have a biological impact on us. So it's not to, the MAD movement isn't to discredit that, mm -hmm. but it's to say that we need to re-attention power away from this predominant biomedical diagnostic way of understanding our distress. So. I would say that I'm fairly balanced in that I think because I've worked as a clinician as well in the field uh, and I have a lot of lived experience with a lot of distress in my family that I don't understand and find it hard to, to support. Um, I do have those varying perspectives being a consumer carer and clinician and now academic. So I kind of have to be balanced in many ways because I'm not really blinkered with any other bloody role in my life. <laughs> um, 
So to answer the second uh, question, goodness me, uh, I think we have an issue with the workforce and the disciplines in mental health. Um, and that's actually why uh, the, the, the focus of mental health is so biomedical because particularly clinical or acute services are predominantly uh, a biomedical workforce, um, psychiatric nursing or um, psychiatry. Um, you know, they work around a medical framework, medical treatments. Um, and I think there's a real issue in that because the power is located within those disciplines, um, which means that they're co-opted by the pharmaceutical industries, uh, which means that there's a real monetization of people's health and distress. So there's an economy around this, which means it's very hard to dismantle as an institution. So there's some real issues, I think, in, in medicine being um, co-opted into capitalism and, and, and seeing our distress uh, monetized. So that's one issue. So I would see a dismantling um, of, of the biomedical workforce towards lots of different um, professionals or non-professionals in the field, you know, from peer workers to art therapists to lay counsellors, um, because we know that most of our distress is resolved through social, um, psychosocial interventions. Um, so that's, that's one big area um, that I would say probably needs um, a bit of a reframe um, as the, the five core disciplines are obviously psychiatry, psychiatric nursing, psychology, occupational therapy and social work. Um, and really the allied health, OT and social work are very, a very small workforce within that field. Well, and too often in those uh, more acute clinical settings, unfortunately, the psychosocial clinicians, the OTs, social workers, even the psychologists too, are lumped in as almost seen as inferior, aren't they? Well, it's all about power, isn't it? And the biomedical framework has the power in the system and the nursing profession is the handmaiden to psychiatry or handmaiden to biomedicine. Um, and when the entire system is constructed around individualizing, monetizing um, and, and pathologizing people's, you know, uh, experiences of distress, you know, it blames the individual. So we can't actually look at those broader factors that impact someone like, you know, housing, relationships, trauma, violence, poverty, um, classism, ableism. Um, you know, those professions aren't actually trained in any of that. And really the main profession to be trained in that's actually social work. And there's very few social workers, particularly in Australia, that work in that field. And I'd, I'd argue that peer work looks at those factors as well, the social and structural. It's a really good point. I suppose social workers, yeah. Now think about it. I mean, the, the nurses, psychiatrists, doctors especially, they wouldn't touch much on those, those uh, significant contributing factors beyond the biomedical model, would they? Whereas social work is very, very holistic in that regard. And I'd say even psychology is very guilty of not being overly holistic when it comes to a lot of those factors. Yeah, well, I guess that's why I refer to psych sciences, the individual sciences that seek to psych, um, scientify our experience, individualise our experience. Um, and yeah, it's all founded around a diagnostic model. Um, it's all founded around trying to be more of a science. Um, and the more we try to make mental health more of a science, the more removed we become from the actual genesis of the reasons as to why people are distressed. So academia is another problem in this area. Science is another problem and, and how science is constructed. So I talk a lot in my, um, in my uh, I guess, education around epistemic injustice. Um, 
epistemology being the construction and how, of how we produce knowledge and privilege knowledge and obviously lived experience and sociology is at the bottom of the hierarchy and biomedicine's at the top and psychology is always trying to be biomedicine, always trying to produce RCTs, always trying to find individual treatments to attend to people's distress. But guess what? People's mental health is worsening and we wonder why, you know, because we're not actually researching um, the genesis as to why people are becoming distressed in the first place. Well, that, about the academia and, and science and the literature side of things, that's, I suppose that, that resonates with me because I have this conversation with so many of my colleagues who I graduated with and new, new professionals to our industry about that big gap between you read the randomized controlled trials about, say, uh, CBT for moderate to severe depression. And you read it and you're a little undergrad and you're your master's student going, wow, this sounds so cool. I'm going to do this to the, to the client or the patient. And that's sort of how the literature reads. But then you get out into the real world and you realize there's this huge gap and disparity between the real world and the, the human sitting in front of you versus how that is constructed in academia. Mm, mm, absolutely. And I think we, we, I think we've almost taken these uh, methodologies. I mean, a randomised controlled trials actually come from agricultural crop um, movement and pattern. So it's like you can't apply that methodology to understanding someone's human experience. It's like trying to eat your cereal with a fork. Um, so we need to actually really deconstruct a lot of these um, methodologies that may I add are very colonial. Um, they're very white Western. Most of them are being constructed by medical practitioners that are upper, up middle, upper class, that are male, you know, within systems of patriarchy and oppression. Um, and we're, you know, if we truly want to decenter um, power, we need to actually look at different ways of measuring um, human experiences in ways that are actually locally relevant to the cultural context as well. Um, and we see that in the global mental health space where it's like, well, we, we have a gap in global mental health. So let's bring psychiatrists into Zimbabwe as if that's working now in the US, in Canada, in Australia. You know, we're just being colonial again. As, as we're talking about this issue of academia and randomized control trials, which are all valid points, I can, I can hear people, the counter to this is, well, you've got government, you've got large amounts of funding, whether it be Medicare or, or uh, block funding to different NGOs. If you remove the requirement of uh, validated treatments or supports for those people who have mental health issues or diagnoses, how do you choose where to allocate the funding? Yeah, I mean, it's a great, it's a really good question. And you can't dismantle a system without having one in place, can you? So, you know, it's a process like with deinstitutionalisation, which didn't work either, really. Um, so I think I think it's about looking at what, what alternatives are out there as well. Um, of course, all the power and money is situated within a biomedical model. Um, all the science is situated within that power base. But there's actually a lot of different literature around methodologies around treatments that exist in lots of different spaces. So I think it's actually about looking at, that's why we talk in the MAD movement about alternatives to psychiatry, about looking at alternative models that are working. Yes, they might not exist within a biomedical or psychological framework, and a lot of people might not like that because 
those industries have vested interests to continue those professions, you know, moving forward and growing. But, you know, if we truly want to resolve the issue, then we actually need to look beyond the current mental health system and the professions and disciplines that inform it. Because um, as we know, when we look at any problem as a human being, usually the way we address that problem is with solutions that are holistic and actually come from different angles. Um, but in mental health, we only have five angles to look at to stress through, which are those five core disciplines. So I think it, it, the, it, the answer is actually in looking at what um, different cultures do, how different economies work, um, and looking at um, alternatives like peer respite houses and different peer interventions like emotional CPR and intentional peer support. There's a lot of stuff already out there, but you know, who's gonna centre that when it discredits or um, might take away funding from their own you know, discipline of knowledge? Mm. Yeah, I can imagine the uproar from different uh, fraternities <laughs> if a significant amount of funding was given to any of those particular I suppose, solutions. Are, are there anywhere in the world or anywhere in Australia that are doing this really well? I think it's happening in, in pockets and um, certainly through the MAD movement where a lot of um, consumer survivors themselves have um, developed their own interventions. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm in the process of developing my own with the NDIS. Um, but certainly, I think Soteria House... Um, yeah, in, in Europe, you know, is an example of a, a sort of jointly run respite house with a lot of peers. Um, there's a lot of respite houses or what we know as prevention and recovery centres in, in the US that are run by peers, fully by peers. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's lots of different training models. Um, there's open dialogue in Finland, which is all about centering the person in their system and having meetings with everyone in that person's system. That's the dog, the employer, the parent. Um, and you do like proper family-centred family therapy work with the person, uh, which is another uh, gross gap in this country in terms of support is for families and carers. Um, and again, the biomedical model, it seeks to individualise. So, of course, we don't have systems levels intervention and support. So I think there's definitely a lot of different spaces. Um, Zimbabwe has a friendship bench that that's really working well where, you know, a volunteer grandmother just sits on the bench and allows people to come along and have a chat. Um, so there's lots of different ways that different cultural contexts have been looking at alternatives to the biomedical model that work. Mm. Matt, when I was doing my training, I worked as a support worker in various different mental health and disability agencies. And one thing I took away, I mean, I haven't worked extensively in that space, but one thing I took away was it almost seemed that where there was peer support or lived experience participation, it almost seemed a bit tokenistic. Mm, mm. Do you agree with that? <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Goodness me. Another big topic. Yeah. Well, again, with the power, it's all about power and back to um, epistemology, you know, as a science within the current, you know, Western way that we construct science, um, peer, peer work or lived experience is not, is not valid, is not scientific enough. Um, people's experiences of reality are discredited. You know, you have, a bi you have a bipolar or a manic episode and all of a sudden when you want to do three tasks at once, you must be manic. So, you know, there's a real injustice in how people actually perceive you and treat you and they're forms of sanism and ableism and we need to start talking about them that way as well to call them out and actually challenge people because like from a, a social model of disability, um, people can happily live with diverse 
distress and expressions of distress, but it's how we respond as a society to allow them to live that way. You know, it's society that becomes the barrier, not the person's experiences. Society becomes sense? the barrier. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm just thinking it. So society becomes the barrier, not, yeah, not the individual. Like the person with the wheelchair, you know, the person in the wheelchair, oh, it's a barrier. They can't get in the home. Well, actually, no, not having the appropriate access to or ramp, you know, to a home is the barrier. Mm. It's the same concept, you know, it's the same metaphor in mental health. Uh, if we can't support people in distress and respond in different creative ways and make, make, you know, spaces more welcoming, such as, you know, employment, education, where lots of sanism and ableism goes on, um, then of course people are always going to be other that have diverse experiences of distress. Yeah, it's a really good example of the, the wheelchair. Tell me, Matt, I can tell how passionate you are about this and I can see why you've spoken at like the, the UN and all, all the amazing avenues that you've spoke or spoken about this passion that you have. Is this something that you developed in your studies or is this because of your lived experience? You've always possessed this pre-studies. Where, where, where did this sort of become a real thing for you? I'm possessed is the key word. I'm feeling a bit possessed, possessed. right now. Possessed by the system. Um, look, I think it's always a bit of everything, you know, again, it's about balance. Like I think, um, I think because I've had a lot of layered experiences um, growing up, being a, you know, a child of a parent with very severe mental health issues, losing a lot of family due to the stigma of that, um, growing up as a young carer, um, you know, I had a lot of interactions with the system even prior to my own with the public mental health system and with um, at the NDIS. So I think all of that really gave me a really strong sense of what's so wrong in the system um, and where the solutions lie as well. I think social work, studying social work helped scaffold a lot of those ideas. It gave me a theoretical context, a framework to understand the world. Um, as social work's all about understanding systems, um, all about understanding more the sociological and structural determinants of, of life. Um, so it really gave me that, you know, that critical lens as well to look at the world. So I'd say it was a combination of both. And then I think when working, then finally working in the system, uh, I realised that I just couldn't, I couldn't work as a clinician. Um, I would burn out too quickly because the problem is with the system. It's not with the person in front of me. Um, and I, I didn't want to be a representative. I didn't want to be handmade into the system anymore and say, I'm sorry, there's nothing more I can do. It's the system. Um, so I think that's when I really started becoming more professionally and personally upset uh, with the system. Um, so, yeah, I think it was a combination of all those experiences and then working in mental health as well that led to my sort of global activism in the space. Where, what sort of context were you working in at the time where you had that experience and just said, I cannot do this as a clinician and almost be part of the system, I suppose? Yeah, well, I've, I've had the pleasure and privilege of working within both the public mental health system and uh, the federal government, two very large, <laughs> oppressive institutions that um, really seek to limit people's experience by, by, through a biomedical model. And forensic mental health was the first, uh, you know, which is a really complex area as well when there is offending or violence involved with distress. Um, so that was, you know, working in institutions um, was, you know, that really illuminated a lot of the issues with the system. 
Um, and then I think working in the federal government, uh, particularly with veterans, um, where a psychiatrist would tell a 30 year old that they were never going to work again um, because they had PTSD. Um, yeah, that was really disheartening. Um, and that they're on, you know, five different medications to, you know, one medication to resolve the side effects of the next. And I just sort of thought to myself, are you kidding, my, are you kidding me? Um, this guy's got a master's in social work and he's just been told he's never going to work again. Um, you know, that was really, a lot of those experiences really left me feeling like I need to change the system, not work within the system. Does psychiatry, medication, even clinical psychology, does it have its place? I think it has its place. I do think it has its place. I think there needs to be a bit of a decentering of professionalisation. Um, there's a real hierarchy of, of, of knowledge production. Um, so I think, I think that the ego needs to be left a little from the psych sciences and be a little bit more open to other disciplines of knowledge and how they inform that practice. Um, and we know even within those disciplines, there's branches, you know, like community psychiatry and psychology, um, you know, ethno-psychiatry, um, social psychology. You know, these are all branches that do more, look more holistically um, at the person and at the system. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think there's, a small, there's a small place for a biomedical framework, but I think actually most of the solutions lie in the, the social. And by social, I mean structural, you know, political, economic, historical, cultural, and then all the social determinants within that. Um, because I think they're the biggest barriers to people becoming distressed in the first place, you know. Like trauma occurs in the context of uh, crisis and distress um, you know, within, you know, patriarchy, all those sorts of things. So if we address those large structural factors, um, which lie in equity and inclusion and more just societies, then we'll see a lot less mental health um, issues or symptoms, in quotation marks, on the surface in society. Mm. Are we heading in the right direction in Australia at all, or have we got a hell of a long way to go? Oh, sometimes we take two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Um, I think we are moving in the right direction. I do. I think we're very lucky in Australia. Um, we have good mental health literacy, um, you know, particularly around depression and anxiety, you know, uh, mood fluctuations and fear, I call those. Um, so yeah, I think we're moving, we're moving in the right direction, but the, the institution of psychiatry and psych science and mental health is very strong globally. Um, and, it, and if, if mental health is always going to be framed as an individual, um, pathologized, monetized issue, then we'll never truly, you know, if the power is always centered in that perspective, we'll never truly be able to attend to the issues. Um, and what government wants to attend to inequity and injustice uh, when in, in the end, um, injustice privileges um, few that have most power in society and screws over most that don't. Um, so people have actually got to be willing to give up some resource and power for, for the betterment of humanity, you know, if we're all to live in more um, safe, supportive, comfortable conditions. Seems only logical, Matt, to ask you this question, but are you going into politics anytime soon? <laughs> Well, there are some roles that I don't put on LinkedIn and uh, let's hey. just say that I'm sure there will be um, 
I'm sure that I might end up in some space one day, but um, I don't know. I really, I, you know, I also can't stand politics like most people. Um, it doesn't matter what party you're in. There's always politics within politics, isn't there? Um, and I think one thing I love about what I do now, because um, my substantive role is academic now, I love being a freelancer. I love not being in any system that's going to silence me. Um, I love being able to speak to truth. Um, and I, I couldn't do that within a federal government department. Um, in fact, I lost my job really because of how open I was about my profile. Um, I couldn't do that in, in, in mental health services um, because there's still a lot of stigma around this and a lot of politics around this. So for me, um, yeah, being in an academic context gives me the voice to be able to do the sort of research I wanna do and to be able to teach the way that I wanna do, uh, that I wanna teach, sorry. Um, so yeah, so politics maybe one day, but the more I think about it, the more I'm kind of revolted by the idea as well. <laughs> but there might be something happening in the background. That's what I'll take from that. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. Well, my dad always said that I'd make a great politician. I never knew what he meant by that, but I kind of, um, yeah, it was probably all. It was probably all my parenting of him that made him think that I'd make a great politician. So. <laughs> Maybe a good independent one day. I want, to, I want to pick your brain, Matt. It just occurred to me earlier, thinking about social work and its role within mental health, especially in Australia. I, as I said, you know, I worked in uh, mental health and disability and also the refugee asylum seeker space as I was doing a lot of my training and a lot of case management. Mm -hmm. And it seems it's such a shame that social work is almost, I don't want to say poo-pooed, but... It's not an accredited profession. So many people out there call themselves social workers. They have no training in social work, mm. uh, let alone any understanding of what social work is or entails. Mm. Why is the profession like this? Yeah, it's a really, it's a, it's a really fascinating question that I think is really located in a, a global context as well. Um, I think historically social work's been a very oppressed discipline because it's been predominantly um, female. It's a really gendered profession and has very limited power within some of those institutions of, you know, biomedicine as well and fighting against sort of um, more powerful patriarchal institutions that have a lot more power and money. Um, social work evolves from a charitable movement as well um, and a group home movement in sort of the late uh, 20th, oh, sorry, 19th century. So I think there's some of the historical reasons. Um, again, epistemic injustice, social work privileges, sociology, and some disciplines that um, white Western thought doesn't privilege, you know, like cultural studies and Indigenous studies and lived experience. You know, social work brings in what the dominant system doesn't value. So of course it's relegated to the bottom of the pool. Um, social workers are also, as my manager once said, like trying to herd cats. Um, we're all trained advocates. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. Social workers, they might work in therapeutic contexts, but we're all trained advocates as well. Um, so often we all have our own voice and we're all very different. Um, mm because we come to social work often with our own experiences of marginalization or othering, whether it's because of your gender or your sexuality or your class. Um, social work's a values-based profession around rights and justice. So most of us actually come to it with a passion for our lived experience, you know, informing the change that we want to make. Um, as it's very political to come to a profession saying we value social justice, because not everyone thinks that way. Um, so I think they're, they're some of the reasons. I think social work is also one of the most diverse 
um, and applicable professions. Um, social workers work everywhere in all sorts of contexts. Um, and APRO basically says that, that we can't register social work because it's not just a health, you know, it's not this uniform health discipline, you know, you work in government, you work in community, you work in policy. Um, we just work in so many different contexts. Um, and yeah, I think social work is probably the largest global profession that really doesn't have much of a voice. Um, yeah, because of all the different spaces we work in. But um, mm. yeah. Because that's, I was going to ask about the APRO thing too. I've all, I mean, I worked in a, in a community health setting as my first job and we were all therapeutic counsellors and there was half psychs, half psychotherapists and maybe the other, you know, 30% were probably social workers. And it seemed, but, but because of uh, this perspective on the profession, like I'm touching on, we're all doing the same job, but social workers were paid significantly less. And it, that, never, that never sat with me. And well, a lot of people said, well, yeah, but they're not accredited. They're not, they don't come under APRA. I mean, is that where you think the profession needs to get to, to come under APRA? Or does that sort of fly in the face of a lot of what you're talking about to be controlled by this regulatory, uh, primarily biomedical body? Yeah, no, absolutely. You've hit the money on the head. I think there's multiple tensions within social work. We talk about clinical social work, you know, like psychology. I call mm. it poor man's psychology. Um, <laughs> or critical social work, which is more the advocacy side of social work. You know, the systems change, the policy, the community organising and development group work. Um, or radical kind of casework um, with people. Um, I think there's a place for both. Um, I think the more that the social work profession becomes co-opted though by a biomedical model, which says that we need more registration, we need more regulations, the more we actually move away from the heart of social work, which is actually doing social change work. Um, which a lot of other professions don't focus on. That's not their remit. Their remit is to do individual work and, and help people cope and adapt to their environments. Whereas social work says, screw that, screw the system. We're going to help you change the system, not help you adapt to it. You know, that's not our job. We work in an anti-oppressive framework. Um, so we don't want to become the handmaiden to oppression. Um, otherwise, that actually undermines the entire profession around justice and rights. So uh, I think it's an and or. I think there's the potential for both. And social workers are becoming more recognised through the accredited mental health social work um, program uh, through Medicare rebating. So I think there's a place for that. Um, but I don't see our professional association talking very much about the critical aspects. You know, where's social work banging down the door saying, <laughs> why, why aren't we changing, you know, the socio-political economic context for why people are distressed in the first place rather than complaining about whether we're Medicare accredited, you know? Mm, that's such a valid point that by actually falling under APRA, I, you know, I never thought about it like that. It really does fly in the face of a lot of those underpinning values that draw people to the profession in the first place. Just on Medicare, obviously, that's quite relevant to a lot of the work we do at Bloke Psychology. What, what's your view on the Medicare model? Or, uh, yeah, no, I, won't, I won't bias you before I ask you that question. What's your view overall on the current Medicare better access model? Well, the 10 session model is certainly not enough. And I think we've all identified that. And we know from trauma, you know, trauma is long-term work. And most, a lot of people have, you know, a lot of complex trauma that's um, not identified. Um, that creates a lot of emotional regulation, distress, a lot of relationship issues. Um, 
you know, not everyone's had the luxury of walking through a public mental health system and walking out with five diagnoses, you know, um, particularly privileged people that maybe see a private therapist and don't ever have to see a public mental health psychiatrist. Um, so I think, I think uh, there's answers in absolutely we need more sessions. I think we need those sessions to be more flexible around the types of therapies and interventions that can be provided. Um, there needs to be scope as well for, for clinicians and therapists to do casework and advocacy too. Because um, again, if we're just providing funding for therapy within that model, we're not actually addressing the environment and the system around a person. Um, and you can't always um, place all that responsibility on an individual when they walk out of that therapy room to change their environment and the world. And sometimes part of your job is helping them do that and hope, helping mobilise the right resources to do that. So I'd like to see a little bit more advocacy within that Medicare scope too, um, in terms of some of that casework. And I think the Centre Against Sexual Assault have a wonderful role where it's counsellor slash advocate. Um, which means that, you know, obviously issues like sexual assault are highly political and gendered. Um, so you're able to do the therapeutic work, but there's scope within that therapy role to do advocacy and systems work, which I think is really important in Medicare as well. Is that some of the work you're going to be doing in NDIS, that advocacy casework sort of role or? I'm really interested in peer, peer models within NDIS and uh -huh. NDIS have just um, launched a, a recovery coach item line, which is essentially trained mental health workers within NDIS because there's been so many issues around people not being able to access the NDIS with mental health issues, not trained work, you know, people not being trained enough. So they've introduced this recovery coach model. Um, the idea is that, you know, predominantly it's for peer workers, but it's for anyone with at least a cert for in mental health. Um, so I'm basically starting my own NDIS um, social enterprise around um, a peer model, you know, completely lived experience model um, from head to toe, very, very participatory, collective, feminist based. Um, everyone has a decision. Um, everyone's trained in being a peer and everyone's a recovery coach. And um, yeah, so we'll see how that goes, though. I'm entering the business space, which is not my area of expertise. Are you, will you be the first person doing that? That sounds like a fascinating sort of framework and service delivery model. I think there's a few little splinters at the moment of people going privately. Um, my own NGI support coordinator started his own um, business, so I'm sort of just modelling a bit off, off what he's done as well. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's no large-scale organisations or medium-scale organisations that are doing that work at the moment. And in Australia, probably Brook Red in Queensland is the only completely lived experience-based organisation um, that have, you know, like a peer house um, and peer workers that do casework. Um, so we don't really have that in Victoria. Um, you know, Wellways is maybe the closest we have to that, but that's still, you know, 50-50 in terms of peer versus trained people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So where to next for Mr. Matthew Jackman in this space? Oh, good question. Well, um, that PhD needs to get done at some point. Um, I love talking and I don't like writing. So um, it's, uh, I, I love research assistance for that reason. Um, I didn't know you were doing a PhD, Matt. I didn't know you were doing a PhD. What's your, what's your thesis? 
Well, it's looking at peer work as a global rights and justice profession in mental health. So I'm really interested in the discipline and profession of um, peer work or lived experience work, service user work, whatever you want to call it, um, which is obviously founded in the movement that I've talked to um, and, you know, founded around rights and recovery and strengths. Um, but also looking at alternatives to psychiatry. So I'm really interested in, much like social work was a discipline founded, you know, 100 years ago, I'm interested in becoming part of that movement of constructing lived experience as its own um, professional discipline at multiple levels, you know, peer support, peer advocacy, peer advisory work, peer academia, whatever. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm interested in continuing to pursue and progress that um, as there's a lot of beckoning and emerging research to come from lots of different parts of the world um, that will help um, give the theory and philosophy behind peer work to become its own discipline and profession. Um, and that, that to me is my little contribution to the movement and agitating the biomedical model. Or really dismantling the system from the inside to a certain degree, aren't you, Matt? Well, yeah, I don't like to think that I'm inside it, but you know, maybe I am. Maybe I'm blinkered by my own, you know, privileges. But um, yeah, I, yeah, I think, I think, you know, I, I love, I love education. I love teaching. To me, that's that's doing good social work is teaching on mass. Um, that's anti-oppressive work and advocacy to me now. Um, and so is research. Getting to choose what sort of research I do, um, because that's unfortunately what's privileged is um, papers. Um, so if I can work the system against itself and um, um, implode it from within, then so be it. <laughs> I like how you put that, Matt. Um, lastly, Matt, I'm mindful of your time, but um, one thing I normally ask uh, guests before they leave is if there is somebody listening to this, usually a bloke, but somebody listening to this is really resonated with maybe your lived experience and they're struggling, especially at the moment, given stage four COVID restrictions, but they're struggling with their own mental health. Mm. What, what's your first tip or, or takeaway for them? What's that first step for them? Well, I think relationships start with yourself, don't they? You know, everyone's always like, reach out to someone else, but really you've got to have a strong relationship with yourself. So I think it's just about being really in tune with what's going on with your thoughts and your emotions, um, trying to articulate that to yourself as to, you know, where the distress is coming from and externalising a lot of that self-blame and self-sabotage that we often encounter. Um, so again, I think just linking what's going on internally to the environment is really important. Um, maybe that's the social worker coming out in me as well. Um, but yeah, I think being really kind to yourself, um, absolutely reaching out. Um, but, you know, the building blocks of all mental health, you know, eating well, sleeping well, um, connecting, um, having routine is really important. That's been really important for me, uh, making sure you have scheduled meetings or schedule catch-ups in the morning, you know, get yourself out of bed when there's those kind of hotspot areas of potentially heading into a spiral. Um, and, you know, don't let toxic masculinity ruin your life. Um, so I think it's just, yeah, I think, I think focusing on some of those core pillars um, and just, yeah, being you is really important. I have to hit you up with a follow-up just because you've hit, you, you've mentioned the buzzword, so I can't leave you without... Explain it a bit further. Don't let toxic masculinity ruin your life. Explain. 
I think don't just don't let gendered roles and um, ways of being, you know, uh, kind of dismantle you. I think I think uh, you know. I guess being a queer man, um, you know, toxic masculinity has had a massive impact on me in terms of how. I, you know, society has defined how I should express myself or be. Um, so I think a lot of men are really actually, I mean, it's probably for another podcast, but a lot of men are really um, oppressed by how society says they should think, feel and behave. Um, and I actually think that a lot of male distress, a lot of male suicide is actually linked to uh, gender and sexuality uh, because they're, their very authenticity is actually being thwarted by society. And when you can't be who you are and you internalise that as shame and anger, that absolutely leads to distress and suicide. Mm, well, it leads back to those systemic issues again within our broader society. That's right. And if we can't address those, then we will continue to see male mental health uh, rise, uh, you know, again and again. Mm. This has been fascinating, Matt. I think we're going to have to uh, link up in the future about another topic, which I'm sure we could talk about for hours. But thank you so much, mate. Where can people find out a bit more about you and any other plugs that you'd like to give? Um, yeah, sure. Well, uh, hit me up on LinkedIn, Matthew Jackman, double T. I don't believe in Matthews with one T. Um, uh, the Global Mental Health Peer Network, um, check that out. I represent the Western Pacific region globally in that space. Um, yeah, also the Global Shapers with the World Economic Forum. Um, yeah, I've got a few YouTube things. So yeah, just type in my name or, or lived experience. Usually that my name comes up when you type in lived experience anywhere. So um, yeah, but do hit me up on LinkedIn if you want to have another chat or organise anything further. I'm always open to um, yeah discussing these topics that we've discussed today. Thank you so much for your time, Matt. We really appreciate it. And just quickly on the YouTube videos, Matt and I were talking before we hit record and there is a fascinating inspiring uh, heartbreaking but overall inspiring seven minute video where matt shares in depth a really i suppose uh detailed summary of his lived experience and uh, how that's impacted him and where he is at now so check that out thank you again mate i really appreciate it uh take care during stage four and enjoy your weekend no problem thanks carl appreciate it Thanks again for tuning in to the Bloke Psychology Podcast. If you like what you heard, please share the episode with a friend or family member, subscribe to the podcast, or leave us a review. If you want to get in contact or find out any more about the work that we do at Bloke Psychology, just head to blokepsychology.com.au and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks again for listening.